0: is taken from Revelation 9, as we work our way through this book. Revelation chapter 9, I won't read the entire chapter, page 1922, and verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss, When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The word of the Lord. May we pray. Heavenly Father, grant me to be clear and concise and practical. Lord, enable me not to go rambling off on this rabbit trail or that rabbit trail, but to stick to the points so that, Lord, What is clear in this passage of Scripture would be clear to us. And also, Lord, as I examine various viewpoints on this chapter, that you would give people to take material that's been distributed uh, and ponder it at home and not let me get bogged down in it. Lord, I need your help because left to myself, I I simply ramble and, and go on and on and on on things that are not pressing And also I need the anointing of your spirit, for it's only, Lord, as you anoint your written word by your Holy Spirit, that it becomes for us living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So do us good and profitable this day. For the Lord Jesus' sake we pray, amen. Now let me ask you as we look at Revelation chapter 9, what is clear in this chapter? Because there are things that are clear that no one can deny unless that person is denying what's there. Notice, first of all, this star that's fallen from the sky. And immediately you think, what a minute, okay, this is, a, this is an actual star? You know, that this, what we see in, in the sky, uh, the stars we see are actually suns, some of which are bigger than our own sun. In fact, most of them are bigger than our own sun. But we then might think of something like, like an asteroid hitting and coming through. Uh, we call those shooting stars, but they're not really shooting stars. They're asteroids that burn when they get in our atmosphere. But we don't have to sit here and speculate. What is this? Well, it's very plain what it is if you look at verse 11. Uh, Revelation nine eleven, That's Satan himself. He says, they had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. Now that's not insignificant, because that's exactly what we see here. That the stars given, in verse verse, uh, 1, the second sentence, the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. What is the abyss? The abyss throughout Scripture is a reference to Sheol of the Old Testament. Uh, which is called, in Greek, Hades. And that is where the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead lived until Jesus conquered death and he, on, on the cross, he descended into the abyss. I won't go and repreach those sermons. But he descended into the abyss and he led captivity captive. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose his body was not buried. Remember that his body was not buried. It did not descend. His body was simply placed on a slab in a rock-hewn tomb. So where did Christ descend? Christ descended into the abyss, into the place that was the holding tank of the unrighteous and unrighteous dead, and also the holding tank for the unrighteous angels who did not keep their own estate. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And so, there's no doubt here what's in view. It's Satan himself who is loosening an army out of hell. That's a good way to put it. It's Satan himself who is loosening an army out of hell, out of the abyss, out of Hades, out of Sheol, not out of Gehenna. Gehenna is the final uh, destination of the unrighteous, the lake of fire. So we're not talking about that. But it's proper to speak of hell. And so what? Satan releases the forces of hell on this earth. And that's very clear. Now there's something else I think that's very clear here. If you look over at verse 17... And that's page 1923, Revelation 9:17. The horses and riders I saw in my vision look like this. Their breastplates. Uh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I meant to the verse before. And he says, in it, 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 uh, go back to verse 13. See, I I'm, I don't believe in Bible infallibility. Sorry, I make mistakes. And my old eyes jumped to the wrong pages. So look at verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Okay, let's think about that for a moment. Four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. In verse 15, the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Look at verse 16. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. I'd like you to hold your hand there because we're going to come back there in a minute and turn to the book of Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. And look at verse 12, Judges 7, 12, and and here's what we have. Uh, We'll start on page 383, uh, where uh, Gideon goes down into the camp, and uh, and that is uh, in verse 8. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night, that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. Verse 10, if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. Now look at verse 12. This is very striking. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled into the valley. Now, who are these people? Well, these are descendants of Abraham, uh, by and large, through other other, uh, wives. Remember that he took another wife after Sarah. Hagar was a concubine who gave him Ishmael, and then Sarah gave birth to the son of promise, Isaac. But then after the death of Sarah, he took concubines and he had other children. And so what you're reading here in verse 12 are the children of Abraham. Not the children of Isaac, but the children of Abraham through his other women. Now, I want you to look at the next verse because it's striking. It's striking. The Midi- or that verse, the Midianites and Amalekites and all the other eastern people had settled in the valley. What is the next phrase? Thick as what? Thick as locust. Isn't it locust that we're reading about being released from the bottomless pit, from the abyss, from the shaft, that Satan is releasing these forces from Sheol, these forces from hell? And notice how they're described. Thick as locusts. And then look at the next sentence. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Let that sink in for a moment. Do you see a parallel here with uh, Judges uh, chapter 7 and verse 12 with the children of Abraham coming against the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you see that? You see the parallel? 200 million? He says their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Now, if you go to the seashore and you try to count the, the grains of sand, I bet you you'll get more than 200 million. I just want that to sink in for a moment because so often as we approach the book of Revelation, We approach it as if we've never, ever read any of the other parts of the Bible. And remember the quote that I gave you uh, over a month ago. And that is that professor at Oxford who said that we should look at the book, uh, not so much in terms of numbers and this and that, but see it as a symphony. It's a symphony. And in a symphony, you take a theme from here. Take Pachelbel's canon. And how many pieces of music have taken Pachelbel's canon and used it in various ways uh, to, in, in musical themes? And you go through and you think of, of Greensleeves, for example, and all of how people do that. And then you get Fugues, where this theme is up against that theme. If you look at the book of Revelation as it's a great symphony that is composed of musical themes taken from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through Zechariah and Malachi and the teachings of Jesus. And so you see that God has summed up all of the scriptures in the book of Revelation as a magnificent symphony, not only of defeat, but of triumph. And if we miss that that note, we've really missed it. So again, as we look at Revelation chapter 9, we know exactly who the star is. The star of the show is Mr. egomaniac himself none other than satan and you know how he's described over two chapters later uh, in revelation or rather three chapters later in revelation chapter 12 uh, we 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 see him described uh as uh the ancient snake uh the 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 serpent and and so on uh and and that's uh he, he that's that's striking isn't it uh, And verse 9 Revelation twelve nine, the great dragon was hurled down that ancient snake called the devil or Satan so those are all uh, titles of the evil one and in the Lord's Prayer we should never forget Jesus is teaching us to pray a prayer of I won't say exorcism but a prayer of deliverance from the evil one, that is Satan. And remember, there's only one Satan, but he has under him a vast horde of evil spirits. And how do you recognize those evil spirits? You recognize those evil spirits because the whole kingdom of Satan is the inversion of the kingdom of Christ. In the kingdom of Christ, The servants of the Lord Jesus, the angels that remain loyal to the Son of God, do so out of love, devotion, and affection for Him, and affection for His kingdom and cause in this world. Whereas the minions under Satan do so out of craven fear, jealousy of each other, uh, backbiting uh, conflict. So Satan's kingdom is like the kingdom of of the Lord God, but it's, it's a perverse uh, form of it. So again, it's Satan. He's releasing these forces. You see how they are like, what they're like. And, uh, and they're like the sand of the sea. And they are like scorpions. They're like locusts that are mixed with a, with a stinger of a snake, as it were, a scorpion. I've never been bitten by a snake. And I don't ever want to be. Even non-poisonous snakes can really hurt you and sting. And scorpions, thank the Lord, I've never been stung by a scorpion. I I don't want to know things. There are a lot of things I don't want to know. So there you see this. Now, I want you to see something else here. If you look at Revelation 9-4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth, or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, where does that take us back to? That that particular musical theme, if you hold your hand there, takes you back to the book of Ezekiel. And as God curses Israel, as God curses the Jewish people, as God curses his own temple, and declares he's going to destroy it, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, as he is leaving, as he's leaving the temple, there in Ezekiel, and this is before the temple is literally destroyed uh, by the Babylonians in 586 BC. This is what we we read in Ezekiel chapter nine, and it's because of the idolatry, the witchcraft, the worshiping of other gods that is going on in the Jewish temple. In Jerusalem, the temple that had been built by Solomon, all of this idolatry is going on there, and they never learned from God's divorce of the northern kingdom, uh, which was destroyed in 722 B.C. They never learned the lesson. And they continue on in their idolatrous path. And so look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, page 1295. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. These are destroying angels. These are angels sent by God, just like what the Jews called the Mahamavits, that is, the angel of death who went through Egypt, killing the firstborn, but not touching anyone who had the blood uh, on the doorpost and lintel of the house. And so notice what's said here. And he said, And I saw six men, verse 2, And again, angels look like humans. Uh, I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the forehead of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. That's an interesting thing. Who are God's people? God's people. God's people grieve and lament over wickedness that happens. In places where that have been dedicated to God. Who's spared in this destruction? When God sends destroying angels against His own chosen city, Zion, Jerusalem, as He leaves Jerusalem and abandons His temple, as His glory is lifted up above the temple and is headed out, on His way out, He's turning the city over to destroying angels just as he, he, he turned the Egyptians over to destroying angels when he delivered his people uh, out of Egypt. So notice again what he says. He says, uh, again, that statement uh, found there where he said uh, in verse 4, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem, put a mark on the forehead of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it. Verse 5, as I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men, and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Where do you begin? Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. In verse 7, Then he said to them, Defile the temple, fill the courts with the slain, go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. While they were killing, I was left alone. I fell face down, crying out, Ah, Sovereign Lord, literally in Hebrew, Ah, Lord Yahweh, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath? On Jerusalem he answered me, the sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say, the Lord has forsaken the land, the Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring them down, bring down on their own heads what they have done. The man in linen with the writing kit at his side brought back words saying, I have done as you commanded. And then if you can look at chapter 10, you can see the glory departs from the temple. Now it's an amazing thing as we, as we read that and going back to Revelation 9. It's an amazing thing to understand that God's Holy Spirit left the temple of God that had been built by Solomon What's interesting is that the Babylonian captivity has two overlapping 70-year periods. One, when Israel came under the control of foreign powers, uh, roughly 609, uh, when Josiah is killed in battle, until 539, when Cyrus the Persian issued his decree that the Jewish people could return. But the other 70-year period begins in 586, When the temple is destroyed and ends when the temple is rebuilt uh, during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, in 516. So two 70-year periods. So the temple is rebuilt. Now here's something that most people don't know. And that is the temple that was rebuilt beginning there and completed in 516 B.C. was remodeled under the reign of Herod the Great. Beginning in the year 19 B.C., which helps us date the time of Christ, Christ was crucified in 30 A.D. because the temple began to be rebuilt in 19 B.C. under Herod the Great. He didn't rebuild the temple. He just uh, took the temple that had been built uh, in the days of Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah. He took that and he entered in an extensive remodeling program. And he made the temple mount much larger. He brought in gigantic stones to support the temple. And so there you have it. And uh, the temple that had been rebuilt uh, following the return from exile uh, covered over a spot that, according to tradition, is where Abraham was going to offer up Isaac. Now here's an interesting piece of tidbit. I was talking to a Muslim just this week, and I showed him out of the Al-Hadith, uh, the statement of the, where Muhammad is told that there will be a Jewish person hiding behind a rock and come and kill him. And so he said to me, that's referring to the rock under the dome of the rock. I said, wow, that's an interesting thought. I never never thought of that before. The dome of the rock. What is the dome of the rock? When the Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans, in literal fulfillment of Jesus' words, not one stone was left standing on another. The entire temple was destroyed. And what was laid bare was the rock. And in Islamic teaching, the third holiest site in Islam is that rock. Because in in Islamic teaching, Muhammad's horse, lightning, al-Baruch, took him on a night journey to heaven. And the horse decided to stop on his way to take Muhammad to heaven and put a hoof print there in the Dome of the Rock. Now that's an important piece of information. And remember this, the important thing about Israel returning to the land is control of the Temple Mount. And they still don't have control of it. Not to this day. And so there's the Dome of the Rock. Muhammad's horse, Al-Baruch, supposedly put a footprint there. That's an interesting thought. That's why Jerusalem is to the entire Muslim world, the third holiest place in the world, Mecca being the holiest, then the city of the prophet, Medina, where Islam actually began, because Islam, remember, is a political movement with a religious base, That's why they date everything before the Hijrah and after the Hijrah. So the third holiest place is in Jerusalem. And so this is not insignificant in our own time. But getting back to where we were, uh, I want to say what happens is the temple is destroyed. Not one stone is left on another. In literal fulfillment of Jesus' words, all that's left are the foundation stones there. Now, here's an interesting thing. Were you to read, the really only reliable witness of what happened in those days, because you remember when the, when the zealots fled the city of Jerusalem, they traveled to Masada, and they captured Herod's fortress, and they held out till 79 AD, AD 79, when they committed suicide uh, at Masada. Who is the one and only witness to this who tells us what happened? He's a Jewish general who realized he was so greatly outnumbered by the Romans that he surrendered his army, which were the armies of the Galilee, went over to the Roman side and tried to persuade his own people, Surrender! You can't beat these people! And so Josephus is a witness. Now this is something that is truly amazing. Just before the Romans entered the city and destroyed the Jewish temple, people saw visions. They saw uh, people leaving. They saw like horses and others uh, in the sky leaving the city of Jerusalem. In other words, exactly what you see in Ezekiel is repeated just before the temple is destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. The, The only eyewitness of these things... And so what I'm getting at here is, as we look at this chapter, we see striking parallels. God always sealed his own people. What did God do for the Christian Jews who were living in Jerusalem? Something truly amazing happened. Jesus had told them in Luke chapter 21, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, get out, get out, don't go back in your homes. Don't go down to get anything, jump from rooftop to rooftop, get out of the city. And here's what happened. The Roman general, Cestius Gallus, has the city of Jerusalem surrounded. And guess what happened? For some bizarre unknown reason, I know the real reason, it was the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, he retreated, even though the city was on the verge of complete surrender and collapse. Two things happened when Cestius Gallus retreated his army back into Syria. Two things happened. One, the Christian Jewish people, the the Jewish people who believed the word of God, the Jewish people who worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people who believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is their Messiah, They realized this is the sign that the Lord Jesus gave us. And they left Jerusalem and they fled. And they got away and they were preserved because God will preserve his people. But what was the other thing that happened? When Cestius Gallus sounded his retreat, the unbelieving Jews, the Jews who had rejected Israel's Messiah, became emboldened. And particularly the zealots. The zealots took things over and controlled things. And just before Jerusalem is finally destroyed by the Romans, they're calling all the shots. They're ruling everything. And it was a terrifying place to be. In the year 80-70, there was no place more dangerous to be than the city of Jerusalem that had fallen to the control of the zealots who were killing other Jews right and left and who were replacing the high priest and all these things. It was a terrifying place to be be, and remained under their control until they escaped as the Romans took the city in AD 70. On the exact same day of the exact same month of the Jewish calendar that the Babylonians had destroyed the temple of Solomon. God's word is true. We should believe that word. And God willing, next week, uh, we will look at the historicist view that's presented there in Matthew Henry's commentary. Just this word. Matthew Henry's commentary was the dominant commentary among English-speaking Protestants until well into the 20th century. And so what you read there, and a man named Tong, who was, English and not Asian, a man named Tong took uh, Matthew Henry's notes because Matthew Henry died before he could complete his his entire commentary series and he put there. And then you will also note somewhere when you read it, and I pray you will read it and study it, there's a reference to Meade, M-E-D-E. That is to a man who was a professor in Cambridge and who wrote a book, Uh, a commentary on the book of Revelation that is profoundly revealing. So, God willing, more on that next week. And one final appeal to those who may be watching this uh, by, by way of the internet. Each week, as we've been doing this series, we've seen our world plunged into greater and greater chaos. I do not know when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. I do believe that the things in the book of Revelation had a essential and fundamental reference to what happened to the Jewish people uh, 40 years after Jesus prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. I believe that. But it doesn't exhaust it because what you find in the book of Revelation is what you find elsewhere. That prophecies that had an initial fulfillment are recapitulated throughout time. Now, that's overly technical. Let me just bore down this way. Our world is about to explode! It is about to explode. China and Russia lining up with Iran. Our military already on the ground, the U.S., uh, and enforcing what's happening in the Gaza Strip, which is... Annihilating a group of people. And Lebanon with Hezbollah. And all I'm saying is this. If ever there were a time to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it's now. Because if there isn't peace there, we may be on the verge of something unbelievably horrible happening. And what am I saying to you? If ever there were a time to make sure that you know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, that you've repented of your sins and cast yourself on his mercy. It is now. It is now, the 29th day of October in the year of our Lord, 2023. Won't you come to Jesus? Won't you come to Jesus? Won't you turn to him and join me in praying for Abraham's warring children? descended through Isaac and Jacob as well as through Abraham's other wives, all of whom are fighting each other with ferocious hatred and a desire to annihilate the other. Isn't that an amazing thing? After all these millennia that Abraham's warring children are still fighting and fighting over something that's essentially worthless Because nothing in this world and this life is worth really dying for. It's heaven. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where my citizenship is. And I'm looking forward to being there. Because one day, heaven is going to come down to this earth. When is peace going to happen between Abraham's warring children? When the world embraces the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ who is still reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again, and he will take us to himself. Oh, turn to him while it's still time. In Jesus' name, amen.